Good morning, Bethel. So let's read our scripture reading now. It's Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. So if you could take the Bible, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 820. If you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's word. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. It basically was a way that they protected their assets under the guise of spiritual language. It's given to God. And really it was a way to protect their selfish. Um, selfishness and greed. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall, fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay. Well, things can happen in this life. And all of a sudden, reality braces you and arrests your attention. And certain things become so real that previously you just were not so much in touch with. Things like what happened this week with Jay. I mean, I know I just think, oh God, I trifle so often. Like we just live on the brink of eternity, all of us, every single one of us, and we so often we just trifle. Things like this are sobering. You go to a funeral, you hear a diagnosis, I mean, we, things that are just like this splash of cold water of reality that we live, we're weak, we're fragile, we, we're all going to die. 
So all of that is going to happen. If it hasn't already happened, if you haven't experienced things like that already in your life, it's going to happen sooner or later. We oftentimes live with this illusion of control and security, safety, even in vulnerability. But for all of us, those sobering moments are going to come and ultimately our death day is coming. And beyond that, the ultimate reality that one day is going to break in on us is the second coming of Christ. So what if we received a visit from the Lord this morning? And I know that could sound trite and cliche or whatever. I mean, literally, what if the Lord showed up this morning? I know He's here, and I treasure that fact. By His Spirit, He is present with us. I mean a special visitation like He has done. Certainly we read of it in the pages of Scripture like Mount Sinai. That was one scary visitation. Imagine a mountain shaking and quaking and covered with smoke and fire. It's not just a cute little children's story. Just imagine. They, they, they were like staying away. You, you go, Moses. So let's say God descended like that and he spoke a voice from heaven like at Jesus' baptism. What would he say to you? What do you think he would say to you? What would he say to us? Well, whatever he would say, I would venture, if that happened, we would listen. Well, that day is most certainly coming. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So there are some, there can be some moments where reality hits us so hard between now and then, but best way to be ready for that day, the ultimate reality check, is to listen now, to listen to how God addresses us today, this day, okay? So we've been walking through the book of Isaiah, and last week we dove back into the to the book, and we're in the third main section of this book, the first section, chapters 1 to 12, and then 13 to 27, and then the next section is 28 to, to 39, and we looked at chapter 28 last week, this crisis that the people of God were in and how their leaders were a mess. There was so much rebellion. They basically had their fingers in their ears with what God was saying to them, and they were, they were running everywhere but God. They were under threat, and they're looking to all these false saviors to rescue them, Egypt was one they wanted to make an alliance with to kind of protect them from the big bully Assyrians. But this isn't just a history lesson. Okay, we can do the very same thing. We get threatened, and where do we run? For refuge, for rescue, for help. Well, the good news is, and this is the message of the book of Isaiah, God saves He can save us from ourselves, from our foolish inclinations to run to false saviors. And sometimes he does that by surprising and strange means. We looked at that a little bit last week. We don't always understand everything that he's doing, but we can trust his heart for why he's doing it. 
And that's clear in our passage again this morning. We've seen that already in Isaiah, but we're going to see it again this morning. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to Isaiah chapter 29, and we're going to walk through this chapter together and see what God has to say to us this morning. So there's an outline. You'll see slides on the uh, screen here. There's also an outline in your bulletin. So point number one, listen to how the Lord addresses you, verses one to eight. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. (laughs) Okay, as we go through Isaiah, we've talked about this before. Um, There's a lot of historical cultural distance, and so we have to do a little digging so that we know what God is saying here. Ariel, you probably think of Little Mermaid or something like that. That's not what this is about, okay? It's a city, the city where David encamped. So he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. Is that weird? Like, why don't you just say Jerusalem? Well, actually, if you think about it, it's not all that weird to call a city by another name. If I say the Windy City, okay, Chicago. If I say the Big Apple, that's kind of weird. Why are we calling a city an apple? A big one. That's weird. No, it's not that weird. Sin City, Vegas. There you go. But the big question here is why does he call Jerusalem Ariel? Okay, now that's why you have to have a good study Bible, <laughs> um, because most people don't know Hebrew, okay? You can always call Dwight. I'm sure he'd appreciate, or he'd welcome those calls. Um, he knows Hebrew a whole lot better than I do. So it almost certainly means altar hearth. <laughs> what? Okay? It actually can also mean lion or hero, like a lion-hearted, anyway, but Given the context here, it's almost certain that it means altar hearth, okay? So the, the point is the place where the sacrifice was burned up, okay? So offered to God by the people to make atonement for sins on the altar hearth. That's where their sacrifices were burned up. So that's where the fire was in the temple. Okay, well, this makes sense. Jerusalem was the center of God's presence At that time, the temple was the place of his special presence where the sacrifices were offered. So is this like a term of endearment? Ariel, Ariel, what's he saying? Well, look how how he continues here. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, like an altar hearth. The city's going to become... Like an altar hearth, in other words, she's going to be ablaze. This is not good. And I will encamp against you all around. God is coming to attack and besiege you with towers, and I will raid siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff, and in an instant suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. This is is not a pretty picture. This is really sobering. They had been so rebellious, sticking their fingers in their ears, and God, his patience, he is so patient. 
but he ultimately has to bring judgment if people are that stubborn and recalcitrant. And that's what he's saying he's going to do. So do you notice that no nation is mentioned here? He says, I'm going to do this. Well, God always used means, right? And in history, he used the Assyrians, and then later on he used the Babylonians to totally rate, like, burn Jerusalem to the ground. But here's the point. The reason why a nation is not mentioned is because the Lord himself is their bigger threat. He's the one actually doing this. Assyria is not their biggest problem. God is. God's always our biggest problem, and God's are always our biggest solution, our biggest answer. We're blinded if our circumstances seem really big and God seems really small. So this is a text to say, oh, no, 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 God is really, really, really big, and everything else in comparison to him is, is small. So he is the main issue. God is the main issue, the one that we all need to deal with. Even the most powerful superpowers are pawns in his hands. So the issue is not the Assyrians breathing down their necks. That's not really what they needed to be freed from that threat. God was their biggest threat. He was opposed to them because of their hypocritical religion. They're just going through the motions. They're not listening to him. That's the whole point of that phrase, Add year to year, let the feast run their round. Just keep going. Just keep going through the motions. That's all you're doing anyway. He's, they're not listening to him. So God tells them, I'm going to show up. Verse 6, I'm going to visit you and it's not going to be pretty. New Testament says our God is a consuming fire. You don't trifle with a consuming fire. A consuming fire can consume you. Hebrews 12, 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Listen to this. Um, any Bob Dylan fans out there? <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. I see that hand. Okay, there's a few back there. So he wrote a song called uh, When He Returns on his album Slow Train Coming. Okay, you don't want to get all your theology from Bob Dylan, but this song is really pretty amazing. Listen to these words. I'll, I'll read two verses. And again, just think of the shock and the bracing kind of reality check that the coming of Christ is going to be for so many, hopefully not for any of us here. The iron hand, the powerful in this world, it ain't no match for the iron rod. Psalm 2, King Jesus. The strongest wall will crumble and fall to a mighty God. For all those who have eyes and all those who have ears, this is in our text, it is only he who can reduce me to tears. Don't you cry and don't you die and don't you burn. For like a thief in the night, he'll replace wrong with right when he returns. Surrender your crown on this blood-stained ground. Take off your mask. He sees your deeds. He knows your needs even before you ask. How long can you falsify and deny what is real? How long can you hate yourself for the weakness you conceal? Of every earthly plan that be known to man, he is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. So the main issue 
here in this text is that God is not happy with his covenant people. We'll see more of why in a minute. We've already alluded to some of it. He knows they're under threat, though, that there are big bully nations around that want to pummel Jerusalem. So look what he says next in verse 7. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, they're going to be like a dream, a vision in the night. As when a hungry man dreams, he's eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, he's drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. So what's the point of that? The enemies that you so fear. You're freaking out because of these threats. I can deal with them like that, and I will. The ones that scare you so much that you're willing to run and make these foolish false alliances, all those mighty enemies will one day be blown away, gone in an instant. So you're freaking out at how strong these threats are, and I'm infinitely more powerful than the strongest threats. Why are you running to cheap, weak, substitute saviors? That's what he's saying to his people. Some of us might need to hear that this morning. So the big picture of chapters 28 to 35 is the so-called people of God are choosing expediency over trust in God and his promises. They're taking matters into their own hands. They're not trusting in the Lord with all their heart. They're leaning on their own understanding. That's pretty relevant to our lives, even though you didn't know what Ariel meant before this morning. And we might just read right past it. So when you are fearful and anxious and stressed out and overwhelmed and depressed, listen, this is so easy to just hear a preacher say and just one in, in one ear, out the other. Listen, think back to the past week, the past month, past six months, past year. Really, we, ha- we have patterns, right? When you get stressed out, yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> when you get overwhelmed, when you get fearful, where do you typically run? That's your real refuge, your real savior, your real help. Do you actually go to the Lord? Or do you just go through the motions and actually trust in the things that you run to to self-medicate? Those things are just going to dull your senses, spiritual senses. Look at where the text goes next, the senses of your soul, verses 9 to 14. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this. He says, I can't, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I can't read. This is, 
they, they, they just were blind to God's goodness. They doubted his goodness. They stuck their fingers in their ears, and finally God gives them over to this and pours out this spirit of, of deep sleep and stupor. And here's the vision. This is what happens. To God's word, they just are totally indifferent. It's a really sad picture. So that first image, this read this and I can't, is the image of someone that's so indifferent that they don't deem the message worth getting a knife to open the seal. Imagine like someone saying, you got to read this letter. You just got this letter. It's so like, you know, urgent. I mean, I know some of those like fundraising things and, you know, they put markings all over it and you're just like, would you stop? Anyway, that's not the point. This is like really, really important. I don't want to have to open the seal. That's really indifferent if you're not even willing to do that. The second image, someone who's so indifferent that there's just no interest in learning. It's a message from God. He's been, I, I, I can't read. Now, why are there certain people? Have you ever known somebody like this? I've known a couple people like this. They, they get connected. They start dating this person whose heart language, whose first language is something other than their own. And they will, like, learn the language so that they can communicate heart language with this loved one. What motivates such crazy craziness? That takes a lot of time and energy, doesn't it? Or what about, you know, like the Indiana Jones types that are willing to learn other languages because of the treasure that they hope to find? There are these people in the world, right? Well, guess what? The Bible's a treasure map. It's not just a road map. It's a treasure map. It leads to God. Kingdom of heaven's like a treasure hidden in a field. When the man found it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. In his joy, he's giggling all the way to the pawn shop. Because of how much of a treasure this is. Do you see that if we respond to the gospel with, <sighs> we're blind. Because it is a treasure. It's, an, it's a treasure of inestimable value. So we shouldn't be dull and and dead to it. And the Bible is a love letter, not just a historical document. So figuring out what Ariel means is worth it because we want to know what God has to say to us because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. Listen to this illustration from a guy named Tom Steller, a guy I know, pastor in Minneapolis. If a rich uncle left his huge inheritance to the person named in his will, and you knew that you were that person, you would be very zealous to see that the court interpreted his will in a way consonant with the author's intended meaning. So if, if you got some legalese, if you're not Matthew or Thomas, or maybe you would just be like, oh, give me a break, this legalese. You don't want it. But if it had to do with an inheritance, all of a sudden you're like, hey, Matthew, can you, can you help me? I got to understand this document. Hey, Thomas, can you read this over? <laughs> because of the value. They're lawyers, by the way. So that's probably clear. Um, you would be very zealous to see that the court interpreted his will in a way consonant with the author's intended meaning. Or if you were desperately sick with a terminal disease and you heard of a doctor who knew the cure and he wrote down a health regiment for you, you would do everything in your power to understand what the doctor meant in his health regiment and do whatever the regiment called for. How much more should we, like... Wesley, regard the word of God to be precious and most worthy of study. Each word of God is precious. Each preposition, proposition of Scripture is not merely a pearl on a string, but a link in the chain, and the study of this book matters. Eternity is at stake in how we understand and teach the Bible. There is no academic gamesmanship. We are blood earnest in our study. 
So are you indifferent to the gospel, to the word of God, to what God has to say to you? Listen to Peter's words. So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, some of that heart stuff that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 15. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Our spiritual senses, like we need a little little reality check. We might need to kind of get our own pulse here. That's what God's trying to do. Open our eyes, unclog our ears, sensitize our hearts. We need to listen. Why were these people so spiritually dull? Why was he calling them Ariel? Why was he against them? Look at verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So this is where that passage comes from, that Jesus quotes Matthew 15, read it for the Scripture reading. So just like in Jerusalem's time, Jerusalem at Isaiah's time, Those that Jesus was addressing, they were very religious, faithful church attenders. They were tithers. They sang the songs. They prayed the prayers. But it was all in vain. That can happen. Hopefully it's not present here. But if it's present here, oh, how God is so kind to say, you, I want The blinders to fall off this morning. I want to unstop your ears. I want you to know that this is you so that I can have your heart, not just your rote religion. So Jesus addressed those people in Matthew 15 as you hypocrites. We got to listen to how God addresses us. Hopefully that shoe doesn't fit, but if it does... We need to listen. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There is a kind of worship that is externally orthodox. But it's really, listen, I've seen this present in my own heart, so I'm not just, you know, we all can be prone to wander. So listen, have you seen this in your heart? There is a kind of worship that is externally orthodox, but it's really a way of evading and avoiding the true path of trust and obedience, of following Jesus. So what happens is I don't, I don't want to follow Jesus in these uncomfortable ways. I don't want to give up this or that. But I do want to make sure I'm okay. So I'll go to church faithfully. I'll give. Maybe even give a little more when I'm feeling especially guilty. Offer to serve in some ways so I feel better and try to quiet my conscience that keeps accusing me because I won't deal with that thing because I'm afraid. God doesn't want you to keep going through the motions. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your sacrifice if your heart is somewhere else. I want your heart. Listen to Ray Ortland. He says, will our worship be consumed with God or will it be consumed by God? 
burned up because it's worthless. Worship without reality means nothing to him. So if God has your heart, then your sacrifice won't be this meaningless means of trying to manipulate him. Hold him out at arm's length, but, but our sacrifice will be the sweet aroma of, of a real heart that desires to please him and honor him. So are any of you just going through the motions? I mean, you might look good on the outside. How you doing? Oh, fine. How you doing? But really, do you see it? Maybe this morning the Lord's just opening. I have been blind and deaf and dull. Well, the best thing that you could do is listen this morning. If God calls you a hypocrite, it's not to just rub your face in it. It's to wake you up so that you can get real with him and know real life in Christ. So the point is not to look good, it's to see God. We don't, hopefully we don't come to church to look good in other people's eyes or whatever. We want to see God, right? Open our eyes to see. I mean, that's what we sung. Show us Christ. So wouldn't you rather have God than appear to have it all together? Anybody? Oh, a few of you. Okay. I'll keep preaching. Um, So big picture here, God judged his people because they weren't really his people. They honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far away. He did it because he's righteous and can't make a truce with rebellion. He can't be indifference to indifference. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards wrote. If we be not in good earnest in worship of God, and please know worship of God is not just singing songs on a Sunday. That's just one little small piece. It's 24-7. If we be not in good earnest in worship of God, if our wills and inclinations are not strongly exercised, we are nothing. The things of God are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercises of our hearts unless they be lively and powerful. In nothing is vigor in the actings of our inclinations so appropriate as in the worship of God. And in nothing is lukewarmness so odious. True religion is ever more a powerful thing, and the power of it appears primarily in the inward exercise of it in the heart. Where is the principal and original seat of it? And if you've been here for any amount of time, you know, you, you probably could guess how I'm going to qualify this. Well, I never live like that. Okay. Do you hate it when you're cold? Because that could sound like Oh my goodness, I'd probably walk like six inches off the ground if I was doing that all the time. That's not me. I'm not, maybe I'm not real. No, no, no. Where is your heart and are, the, are those inclinations strong towards God where when you see coldness and indifference, you make war with it? <laughs> of course we're going to have coldness and indifference. We're going to have to wrestle with it. But we're going to wrestle with it by God's grace. So may it not be that that... that thing that Paul said to Timothy that there are these there are some who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power okay so sobering words but God's acts of judgment in history these sobering um, words to us they're not ends in themselves they're intended to wake us up to open blind eyes to unclog deaf ears they're intended to bring life and blessing and peace so where are you in that cycle 
Like, how are you responding to the word of God right now? We all deserve the fire of God's judgment. But you know what? Listen, Jesus came. He came and he went through the fire for us. And he was consumed on the altar hearth, as it were, so that we could be rescued. So if you think of all that stuff that's in our hearts, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him, like Jesus said, adultery, lust, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Oh, man. Jesus was consumed for us on the cross. He went through the fire for us so that Isaiah 43, 1 could be true for us. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So are you listening as God addresses your heart? Do you want God to have your heart and give you sensitivity with your spiritual senses? Well, there's two paths depending on how we respond here to him. It's either hiding and hating or happiness and holiness. Let's look at that here briefly. First, those who don't want God to have their hearts Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us? Who knows us? So there's this blindness that's underneath hypocritical religion that believes that you can look good externally while you're holding on to and hiding secret sins. You don't want God to have your heart because you've given your heart to other things, things that you do in the dark that you don't want to be revealed. You don't want to give up. But there's also another dullness under hypocritical religion. It's anger. Anger at God. You don't want God to have your heart because you don't trust Him with it. You feel like you've been burned by God, and you don't want to be burned again. Look at verse 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. He doesn't know what he's doing. So God mercifully comes and, and calls out both of these people to arrest their attention. And he does it to open their eyes and show them a glimpse of the better path, the one where we get real with him and watch him transform us from the inside out. Look at that path, verses 17 and following. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Oh, don't you want that? That's what God's up to. That's what he wants for us. Fresh joy in the Lord. Anybody up for that? Look at 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall be no more ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. So basically, the picture is imagine Jacob, you know, forefather, looking at his children, his grandchildren, 
at first in the time of Isaiah, he would look and he would be ashamed and his face would go pale. Oh my goodness, I'm afraid for them. I'm ashamed of them. And then, due to the wonders that God wrought, he would no longer have to look at them that way because God has done a miracle to change his people. Look what happens when God changes his people, what he wants to produce in us, verses 23 and 24. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands, when Jacob sees his children, the work of my hands in, my, in his midst, they will sanctify them, my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. So he intends to make his people holy. He intends to answer the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's going to do that. He's going to do it in us. Jesus sanctified himself and he was burned up in the altar in our place so that we could be rescued from the consuming fire of his judgment. And so now for God's beloved children, the fire only consumes the dross and refines the gold of our faith. So we don't try to hide from God or get angry with God. We stand in awe of him. And we don't go about in blindness, dull to the worth of his words. Read this. Oh, I can't. It's sealed. No. Look at the end there in verse 24. Those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Yes. The words of God. So last point briefly here. New name, new senses, new joy, new ambition. So there could be some hypocrites among us. And, you know, to some degree, we, we can all wrestle with hypocrisy and be guilty of that. We need to repent. Any sobering words and rebukes like this are purely loving and intended to be restorative. But if you are in Christ this morning, if you are genuinely in Christ, listen, there is so much good news here as we put this text in the context of the whole Bible, you need to know how God addresses you. If you are in Christ, you need to know how God addresses you. He has shown up. He has spoken. And we need to listen. This is too good not to listen. So because of Jesus, God addresses you and I. And you know what he would say if he showed up? He would say, this is my beloved son or daughter. With him, with her, I am well pleased. Do you believe that? Do you have new senses? Like, yes, they can get dull. We need to tend them and not let them, you know, get dull. But if you, if you have desires to love God and others, it's because God gave you a new heart. If you want to know him and feed on his word, it's because he's given you new hunger and new taste buds. He's given you eyes to see his glory. He's given you ears to hear his voice and want to follow him because you're his. And he's given you reason upon reason for new and fresh joy. He has dealt with our biggest problem. He's gone through the fire for us. And any fire that we go through in this life is not only intended for our good to refine us, but he also promises to go through the fire with us. So do you have a new ambition? Don't you want to see his name hallowed? Don't you want to see his name made great? and greatly and sincerely praised in your life, in your family, in this church, in this community? Well, if so, then you know what we ought to do? <laughs> we ought to praise God from our hearts, from whom all blessings flow. Amen.
And that's how we're going to close, by singing the new doxology. Let's pray. Oh God, show us your glory. Don't let us be dull and blind to how great and how good you are. Show us Christ. And I pray that we would have our appetite whetted and our taste buds tuned that fresh joy would rise as we hear your word and long for your name to be hallowed. In Jesus' name, amen.